Hello, patrons, and welcome to the Heath Bar. This episode is brought to you by Melange Magazine. Melange Magazine highlights the art, adventures, cuisine, and community events that make the Black Hills so special. Meet the incredible artists of the Black Hills and see their work. Explore the best hiking, kayaking, climbing, and outdoor adventures the Black Hills have to offer. Indulge in the wide array of dining destinations, sweet spots, and best-kept culinary secrets in the Black Hills. And connect with the diverse culture of the Black Hills through music, theater, history, special events, and much more. Available online at melangeblackhills.com or subscribe to have a copy delivered to your home. Now, as you're all aware of by now, live music has been held in abeyance for the time being. So my public appearances are at zero, and I really don't have a good answer as to when this will change. But keep checking my social media feeds as well as the website to find out when I'll be back slinging tunes for all your purdy faces. What is my social media info and website address, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. You can find me on Instagram at, at the underscore heath dot bar. I'm on Facebook at the Heath Bar Podcast and Twitter at Heath Johnson. And the website is www.theheathbarpodcast.com. Or you can also email me directly at heath at theheathbarpodcast.com. Hanging out at the Heath Bar today via telephone is Eliza Blue. She recently had an op-ed piece published in the New York Times regarding the food supply chain issues we are currently facing in the U.S. during this pandemic and the effects that it is having on ranchers and farmers. We talked a lot about how our smaller local and regional ranches offer a bit of an edge into weathering these issues that we are all facing and how difficult it is for the giant corporate food chains to reshape their process when times like these show up causing the destruction of much-needed foods and goods since they don't have a channel to sell them through. Eliza is also a very accomplished singer-songwriter and now works in a regenerative agriculture raising fiber sheep and grass-fed cattle with her husband and two children. She has a book coming out very soon entitled Accidental Rancher, available for pre-order now at SouthDakotaMagazine.com. This is a conversation about something that is of great importance and worth considering as we continue to travel into the future. What does our food supply chain look like in 20, 50, 100 years? Can having all the food controlled by a small amount of conglomerates be the most viable option for sustainability? Is it time for our local and regional ranchers, butcher shops, etc., to make more of a comeback? I'm truly honored that we were able to talk and want to extend another congratulations to her for her piece in the Times and her upcoming book. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, here at the Heath Bar, give it up for Eliza Blue. Welcome to the Heath Bar, where the conversations are always on tap. All right. Well, thanks for being on the Heath Bar, Eliza. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, you know, like we were talking about just a little bit ago, how we tried to do this a year ago and uh, timing, sometimes thing, things work out better than you plan. And this seems kind of perfect. You know, we're we're currently in a, in a pandemic area. So we're, you know, on the phone. Plus you live pretty far away from me, don't you? We're, we're, how far are you from Spearfish? We are pretty much two, I think two hours and 15 minutes, pretty much directly north. Okay. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty good jaunt if, if we were to try to meet up at some point. So, so a phone interview it is, and that's going to work out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. So another thing, uh, just before we jump into everything here, it's really funny that, uh, this is happening now because I just got a, a picture from my dad about 20 minutes ago. Uh, where he's at the grocery store and the uh, meat section is completely cleared out. He, oh, wow. Like completely empty. And he and he lives down in uh, in Eastern Nebraska. And uh, he's, he said, this is, this is nuts. He did that. Then he stopped at a local uh, butcher shop and um, they're having to limit their food um, or their items to like 10 pounds a person right now. Um so I thought I thought the timing was perfect because you just wrote uh, an an opinion piece um, that the New York Times uh, chose to publish uh, about that exact topic. 
Um, but before we jump into that, tell me a little bit about about you and uh, just what got you into this uh, this life that you're living right now. <laughs> well, it was a it was a wide and wandering path <laughs> that led me to where I am today um, because I I grew up in a suburb of Detroit mm-hmm. and um, and then when I was in high school we moved to a suburb of Minneapolis. And then I uh, went to college on the East Coast, lived in New York City for a while, went back to Minneapolis, and um, for most of my 20s was making a living as a musician mm-hmm. and um, and touring and kind of living on the road. And uh, and I just got pretty burnt out, basically, and, and needed to try something different. So I came to Bison, South Dakota, and I was the English teacher in town for a while. And when I was there, I um, got some little bottle lambs one spring, and um, and that was just kind of the end of that. I was like, "Well, I can never go back because now, from now on, wherever I go, these lambs will have to come with me." <laughs> uh, this is fantastic! You're like, "This is fantastic!" I'm sticking with this. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it was the funniest thing because I, you know, up until that point, I had thought that I was just, you know, kind of trying out rural life and just have a new experience and. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I just, I, I just fell in love with those little lambs and, and then, you know, I ended up staying longer than I thought and ended up meeting my husband who's a rancher and, and, uh, we got married and now we have two little kids and, and so I live on a, on a ranch and we raise, uh, cattle. That's sort of his arena. And then I have a small flock of sheep and then you know, we have chickens and horses and all that kind of stuff. And the rest is history. So this literally just kind of surprised you like, oh, this is, this is what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, pretty much. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I grew up in, uh, in Omaha, which is uh, not really a large city when you compare it to, you know, like New York or other places like that. But, uh, but I grew up my young life. I grew up in Western Nebraska on a quarter horse ranch. Um, and then, you know, when we had ducks and chickens and goats and we did all that stuff and, you know, every summer we'd go out and work the cattle, I, you know, they'd hire us high school kids and we'd go and do all that stuff. So that's my, my past. I haven't lived that life in over a decade, uh, but that's how I grew up. So, um, it's interesting that you kind of took the, the, the different approach where you were kind of growing up in metropolises and, and then just found a lamb and said, well, this lamb depends on me now. So now I'm here. <laughs> yeah, so I can never live anywhere that doesn't have enough grass to feed a lamb. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And then that's how you, and you said that's how you met your husband and now you got the family and everything's kind of going pretty well. All things considered, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I feel just unbelievably lucky and, and, seriously to this day, I mean, my son is going to be five in a month and I still sometimes I'm like, how did this happen? Wow. Like in a good way, just because it was, it's so unexpected. <laughs> this is the way it turned out. I'm trying to think. Um, and I mean, the, go ahead. Oh, just the whole thing with getting this piece in the New York times. I mean, I lived in New York city and, uh, I also write, um, now a, a weekly column that's carried by, um, several print publications, um, across, South Dakota. And anyway, my weekly column this week was about sort of when I lived in New York City. And, you know, so the New York Times was like the paper for my city. Right, right. (laughs) And just the idea that I would ever, you know, reading that every Sunday and just the idea that I would ever have anything appear in the New York Times just was unimaginable. I, I couldn't, I would never, ever have believed that that could happen. So it, it, it took moving to South Dakota to make it happen. That's what's even I know. great. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just, it's just, oh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm the poster child for, for, you know, just see what happens next. Cause life is going to surprise you. <laughs> don't get, whatever's happening now, the next thing might be completely different because it, it can happen. And it does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it has a way, it has a way of doing that. Um, it, it definitely can. I'm trying to remember the last time you and I actually saw each other. I think it might have been, God, it might have even been before your kids were born. It's been a while. Well, it might have been, I feel like it was one of the Wild West songwriter things, maybe. And it would have had to have been. It would have been around there, and I, think I think. maybe. 
Yeah. Like my, my little guy was just a baby or pretty tiny. Oh, that's right. I remember you had him with you. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it hasn't been as long as I was thinking originally, but it's been quite a while. <laughs> Cause you, you kind of, you kind of stopped playing music. I mean, not, I don't know. I'm guessing you still play at home in that, but as far as playing out and around this area, I guess I haven't really seen, seen your name around. So I'm guessing you moved up well, a few hours away and the lambs took over. Well, we, so when I first moved out here, I really, which has been almost 10 years now, mm-hmm. um, I really was like unsure if I was going to go back to music. I really took a break from it then. Um, and then I sort of put my toes back in when my, when my son was just little, um, just cause I was, I just missed it. And, um, that's when I was, I partnered up with Jamie Lynn and we were doing the, the nesters and, um, it's and a great then, name uh, for a band, by the way. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, I've ever so told we, you that, but good. Well, thanks. Yeah, we, we liked it. And, um, we, we did a, we did sort of one summer of kind of trying to do touring together. Um, and, but by then, cause my kids are really close together. They're just 18 months apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, by then I had, you know, a second kid who was a baby. And so we, it was like the two of us tracing all over the state of South Dakota with these little, little kids. And they were, they were actually really great travelers, but, um, it just, it sort of, became clear that that touring and motherhood were we could I could do it but I was like I just don't you know my kids are so little I don't really want to miss this time and so I just decided that for now anyway it's it's better to do the shows kind of sporadically so I still play out a couple of times a year but not like I was before mm-hmm. and this summer um I actually have a book coming out and I was supposed to be we were kind of supposed to do some road shows with that. But, um, I was going to play some some shows and, and do some book signing stuff. And we had this whole little tour plan, but I don't know that that's going to happen now. So, uh, no. which is fine, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it kind of happens that way. I mean, speaking as a, as a father of um, my, uh, my youngest just turned uh, 13 months old today. So... Um, and it's it's interesting what that's done even even for me with with gigging. Uh, I definitely spaced them out a lot further, you know, just to to be here with my wife and one, you know, to help out and two, like you said, you know, you don't want to miss a lot of stuff. And if I'm, you know, where I used to gig most every weekend, uh, mm-hmm. it just you, you can't do that all the time anymore. And and one, you don't want to because you know it's it's your kid and you want to be there for him and that. So I definitely get that. Um, I really hope at least some form of the tour happens though, because that sounds super cool. I was going to talk to you about the, the, the book coming out, um, here in a bit, but, uh, that's, that would be super awesome, especially because, you know, book tours and adding music into it. That's a, that's a unique thing. I, I dig that a lot. Well, our, the big show we were going to have was supposed to be at June 19th, I think at the Matthews, that was going to be like the kickoff show. So it's possible, again, we'll just have to see, I guess, how things are, that we'll do some kind of online version of that. Sure. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe later in the summer. But sure. obviously, just nobody knows. Nobody knows anything right now. We all just have to be patient, I guess. Yeah, it's all kind of a crapshoot right now. We're trying to, I've seen people try to guess and it's like, eh, I'm just, I'm just going to wait it out. You know, my, my work has... Um, this is the other reason why I wanted to talk to you is I work in supply chain. Uh, it's for um, a bicycle company, uh, but uh, oh. so I'm I'm the I'm the purchaser. So my entire job is working with supply chains and in and inventory management and all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, when I when I read your article and you were talking specifically about you know food supply chains and how this all works and that I was like, oh, this is crazy interesting. And because uh, it's all it's always it's already been like a big, you know, hot topic, I guess, with the way the food industry works in the U.S. and not just the U.S. I mean, it happens all over, but, you know, especially now, uh, I think we're all experiencing um, the ramifications of having a system set up the way we have had it set up for decades, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I mean, what really struck me about it is, I, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend 
or I shouldn't pretend to be some kind of expert on the topic. Um, what I know and what the piece is about is, is what we are doing here. And what struck me is that in the midst of, of so much of people upheaval and so many things that are, you know, places in the food chain that are being sort of revealed as brittle and inflexible. Um, the part that we do on a ranch is it ha- hasn't had to change mm-hmm. because um, we we're really lo- we're basically locked into having grass or not having grass, which is you know related to weather. So right. when it's a drought, like that's that's where we are. You know, the instability in our part of the supply chain is if there's a drought, well then we have a problem. And so, you know, when it comes to grassland management and there's all kinds of different things happening with regenerative agriculture that are really exciting. Um, and that's kind of like our, our side where we can continue to work and do better as ranchers and as, you know, grass farmers, as some people refer to us. Sure. But, sure. um, but ultimately, you know, it's the seasons that define our work and that it can't change. I mean, it has to, we have to remain, you know, I guess, tied to the rhythms of nature in order to do the work we do. And um, which I think is part of what I love about it. It, it. It's just, and I think what a lot of people, there is kind of a, it's a little bit like a nostalgia for this imagined past of, you know, going back to the land and things like that. But I think people are hungry for that because there is something about it that you know, the being, having to be so in tune with the seasons, with weather and with the, you know, the land that you're living and working on, that is, I don't know. It's, it's maybe it's part of it. There's something essentially human about it. Perhaps I don't know, but it's certainly for me anyway, has, has felt like a homecoming and which was, as I said, totally unexpected. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely get that. We, we definitely live in a, in a world and very industrialized world where we are kind of a, we live our lives in a structure that's outside of the regular, like you mentioned, the regular rhythms of nature. You know, you think, uh, you know, we can regulate the temperature in our houses. We can, you know, turn on lights when, when it gets dark. And that's been around for, you know, centuries and or a century, I guess, not, not that long, but, uh, um, but even well, even you, having a fire inside your, your dwelling. Sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but the, even when you look and for a lot of that stuff, like it definitely has its benefits. Like you and I are able to, to have this conversation because of the world we live in right now. You know, you're two and a half hours away from me and here we go. But at the mm-hmm. same time, there's certain things that I, I just wonder if there's, we hit, we hit the peak on the best that that can be done. And then we tried to go further and now we're in a situation that we're in right now. For example, you know, f- you know, food and ranching and you know, cattle and and hogs and all of that kind of stuff. You know, when you when you start to look at that as um, as you know, as products versus versus animals, and you get into that whole idea where it's where it's no longer um, this living interaction between you know humanity and nature. Uh, you. I think you lose a sight of what makes us human for one. And then two, you're looking at, uh, you know, when a crisis happens, uh, we have not, we're not geared to respond to it the way we normally could have, or maybe could have, you know, no one really knows one way or the other, but um, I really like that, that phrase you said though, about rhythms of nature, because it's something that doesn't happen that often very more for most people, you know? Yeah, well, and that, I mean, that there's the upside and the downside to it because, I mean, has, you know, any rancher will tell you when you're, has to go out and, and, and deal with, with trying to get ready for a winter storm in January. And the, you know, not only are you just, you have to be out in the elements and there's, there's no way to, like that's, you can't stay home from work because uh, there's no snow days in right, ranching. Right. And also just, I mean, the thing that for me is a real adjustment is like the, the real fear that, that happens when, you know, you're, you're worried about the animals that you're taking care of and you want to keep them safe and you want, you know, there's a, there's a profit obviously involved, but it's, but it's much bigger than that. I mean, they are your responsibility and it's a lot of pressure 
um, you know, because things can go wrong. And uh, like the winter or Atlas, which happened, gosh, now how long has that been? Seven years ago? Yeah, it's um, been, it's been a spell. Blizzard in October. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was devastating to people and it wasn't just financially devastating. It was like, you know, you get to know these animals and, and, uh, have a relationship with them and to lose, you know, for people who lost so many is just really, really painful. Well, and I think that's, that's a key, a key thing you mentioned there is when you get to know them, like it's, I mean, it's definitely not a relationship like you would have with, with, with another person or anything like that, but there's definitely a relational bond there of, of dependence and, and care. And when you industrialize something like that, I think you lose that level of understanding that this is not just, oh, we lost X amount of dollars this year. It's, it's no, there's, uh, you know, several, you know, lives that died during, you know, Storm Atlas, if you want to use that as an example. Um, and it's, it's difficult for, you know, investors or bankers or people that, you know, kind of help prop up that in, you know, the food industry system a lot to even understand that process because it's just not, not a part of their world at all. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a, it is a complicated relationship. It's very, it's a strange thing to be raising things that you, that you know that you're, you know, basically selling for food. Right. And yet it's, it's inevitable. Like they, I mean, these are, they're living, breathing, sentient (laughs) beings. They, you can't be, I mean, at least I don't know any ranchers who are completely like, you know, have a cold heart when it comes to these animals that they're taking care of. And especially like this time of year when, when, you know, you have all the mothers giving birth and like, it's, it can be very intense and they, you know, usually it goes off without a hitch, but you're going to have animals that are having problems and, and babies that have problems and that need you to kind of serve as the midwife or (laughs) whatever you want to call it. And so, yeah, you just, you can't help but like have an emotional investment. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I think I don't, you know, I, I think about these topics a lot and it's, it's, I think I will spend the rest of my life thinking about these topics and not really come to any, you know, hard and fast conclusions other than that. I agree with you that there's something sort of important in our humanity of understanding that like our food requires sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not just from us, but from the the beings that we're eating. And I, you know, even with with plant life, that you know, there's destruction involved. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> anytime you're planting crops, I mean, it's just it, it's not it's not easy, and and we've sanitized it to you know, and partly because it's just to make it efficient, and because so we can have you know feed more people, and it's not all just evil, but but. I also agree with what you were saying before that it's like we've, we came to the sort of peak and then we passed it. And, and I would tend to agree that we're kind of on the downhill slope now and we have to decide like, it, I mean, it's a, it's a good thing in that we, we have technology that allows us to do great and amazing things. So what are we going to, you know, carry forward and what do we maybe need to retrieve from the past that, actually served us better than the present moment is serving us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But there's a certain level of, you know, is it the ranchers that are, you know, getting to make these types of decisions or calls, or is it the, you know, the, you know, the, the bank that owns the loan to the ranch, like, Hey, this is what you need to do. Or, or, or whether it's the, you know, the contract that they signed with whoever they're sending their, you know, their cattle or anything, even if it's, uh, you know, soy or whatever the case may be to, to be processed, wherever that's going. You know, I was reading a, a few other articles because once I read yours, I just went right down the rabbit hole and kept reading a bunch <laughs> more. Uh, but they were talking a lot about how a lot of the stuff that ranchers are forced to do is very specified to the product that, that company is making. Uh, which is one of the problems they're having with the supply chain is they can't uh, change that, you know, quickly to then sell it to grocery stores. Cause a lot of those are for, you know, commercial, commercial sales like restaurants or places like that. And they can't quickly change um, to just sell it to a grocery store to get it to the end consumer. And I'm, I'm wondering if like, because those decisions are made, you know, far away from the people actually working with the animals, uh, you know, it's, 
it makes me wonder, like, should that change? You know, I mean, I would want the person on the ground making that call. That's how, you know, I do things now, you know, when I'm working with my production team, you know, it's, they're the ones dealing with the material and the stuff, you know, I'd rather they, they decide what's, what's the best option to go with here. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, um, ranches and places that are having to, you know, get rid of their surplus because they, they can't sell it. You know, even though they're like, I just told you the grocery, the grocery stores are empty with meat and that just is so weird. Yeah. Well, and it's, so there's, and I'm, I'm pausing because there, I want to preface this by saying that again, I am not an expert, so I might be, I, I, yeah, I, and I definitely know I'm that, and that that's I'm, totally that fine. To, um, but but there is a distinction between pork and poultry and um, beef at this point, and it's a really important one, and that's why I, I want to get this as close to right as I possibly can. But definitely, listeners, go out and do your own research on this topic. <laughs> but um, be, be, poultry and pork um, are raised in confinement to a great degree in this country. And most of them are raised in confinement in really huge numbers. And, um, there's a real big difference, um, in the way that, uh, that industry is structured at this point, which is basically, it's almost like the, the people that are raising those animals, the producers are under contract to these big companies. That's correct. They they have no say where Right now, there's there are some people that believe, and I happen to be one of them, that, that the meat packing industry is trying to squeeze independent ranchers out. And there's a lot of funny business going on at like both a policy level and at like a dollars and cents level, mm-hmm. where they basically would like to do that with cattle as well. So that what would happen is that you know these big corporations would own the animals, and they would almost you'd be sort of like they'd be your boss. They'd tell you what to raise, how much to raise, when it was going to market, all that stuff. Right now, um, and th- that does exist to some degree in the the cattle industry, but like in South Dakota, we still have lots of independent ranchers, mm-hmm. like smaller operations, which is you know what, what my husband and I do. And we make all our own decisions. So we decide what we want to buy. We decide when we're going to sell them. Um, and as a result, it's, so this goes back to supply chain fragility. I mean, we can say, you know what, the markets like next fall when all like right now, we're a little, also a little bit, uh, in a different position because we aren't raising our animals in confinement. We wouldn't sell this time of year. This is when the babies are being born. So all we have mostly moms and babies and, you know, they, they're going to spend the summer out on grass unless something would happen, you know, again, with the drought or sure, like sure. some kind of natural disaster that would result in us not being able to have enough grass to feed them for the summer. Um, but, and then when the fall came, if prices were really bad, you know, sometimes people will, if they have the land to do it, then they have the luxury of, you know, being able to buy hay or they have hay ground or whatever. They'll just keep their cows and they won't sell them because, you know, it, for example, if something were to happen at the packing plant, like what happened in Smithfield and mm-hmm. there was no place to take them, we we would be somewhat insulated from those type of situations because we get to make our own decisions about when we sell and when we buy. Sure. So that is an argument for having more independent producers. And again, that's just the reality is in pork and poultry, not very many of those exist and dairy as well. Well, and it's, it's interesting um, too, because... I mean, working in supply chains and that you learn a lot about, you know, what lean management is. And I'm not sure if you're aware of that, of that phrase, but basically it means making things run efficiently where there's no bottlenecks, you know, Mm -hmm. and you try not to have a surplus of inventory where you're sitting on a bunch of dollars. You try to keep that low and you try to have things move as quickly as possible. So things are just constantly, constantly in a state of motion. So which, which works when you're not dealing with live things, (laughs) I think yeah. anyway, yeah. you know, because you're dealing with stuff that if something happens like this pandemic, the products can sit on a shelf for a while and you're not having to, you know, constantly feed them constant. They're not going to consume a lot of extra stuff from you. They're just going to mm-hmm. sit there as, as, you know, dollars that you can't put in your pocket. Cause you've, you've still got to, you still got to sell them. But, um, but with lean management, one of the things that's really talked about a lot with that is, you know, 
preventing bottlenecks. And, and when you run things lean, it's very easy to spot bottlenecks. Or I think a lot of things that have happened in, in decades past with the way things have been done is things have been so bulky in terms of um, you know food supplies that we haven't really gotten to notice, you know, what would happen if a pandemic hit like this? Well, here we are in the middle of it. And all of a sudden we have all these different, you know, ranches and things that are owned by these corporations that send all of their meat to, you know, one place Mm -hmm. and that place shuts down. There's nowhere to go. Uh, because yeah. they're all dependent on one one factory or one processing plant or whatever the case may be. Whereas you mentioned, you know, you guys don't have to worry about that, you know, because you can you can weather storms like that because it's not something where you're dependent upon, you know, a single place for that to happen. And and that's that's the way it is with a lot of local ranchers and stuff. You know, we have a local butcher shop here in town that gets all their meat from local ranches and local places and stuff, and and they're doing okay. You know, they're not, yeah. they're not worried. You know, they're not, you, we're not walking in there and looking at empty shelves, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, so I feel like there, it, it is, again, I, I, far be it for me to like vilify one, one practice over another, because I do think, you know, when you're talking about lean management, I mean, part of the downside of, um, running an independent ranch is that you have to wear so many hats and that can be not only is that just overwhelming, but like inevitably there's going to be an area which isn't your strong point. (laughs) And so when you, you know, it's, it's one thing to be sort of an expert on knowing when to move your cows to grass, knowing, you know, like basic veterinary care. I mean, there's all these different things that you have to know how to do to be a rancher, fix your own equipment, all, and, and you also have to be your own business manager. And that's a lot for, you know, one, one family unit to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you know, that I guess there have been many times where I think, Oh, this is why it would be nice to outsource. Sure. <laughs> Some of these jobs would be nice to have somebody who knows more about this doing it. But you know, that again, like as we're, as we're all getting to experience firsthand now, the downside of having things be efficient as they are less flexible. Well, and there's um, a certain so, level where you can do that also that's not, you know, gargantuan to the point where it can't be flexible. You know, I mean, I you know, I growing up in yeah. r- rural western Nebraska, you know, there were tons of co-ops and places like that for for the the farmers and the ranchers and stuff that they would work together, you know, and they would utilize each other's strengths, you know, but at the end of the day they were all independent farmers and ranchers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's value in that. And I mean, you're right. Like you shouldn't, things happen a certain way for a reason. And there's a certain, certain level of where if you vilify one, then you're, you're going to completely miss, uh, some of the benefits that there might be in that, in the way the process is done, because not everything is completely wrong. You know, I mean, you, you already mentioned it, but you know, there's a, we're able to feed a lot of people right now you know, mm-hmm. because of the way things are and the way things go, except when things like this happen. And that's <laughs> yeah, what makes exactly. me wonder, like, is there, is there a way to kind of mold uh, both options together to kind of get back to that, to that pinnacle? Like, Hey, we hit the pinnacle where we were super efficient and, and producing, you know, crazy amounts of, of food and we're able to um, get that maximum profit every year. I think you even mentioned that in your article, you know, where that's kind of where things are, are geared towards right now. But um, is there a way to backpedal that a bit and realize like, mm, but there's also value in not, you know, boxing every small ranch out of the, out of the game because at some point mm-hmm. they're necessary and we need them. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's interesting. So I, first of all, I happen to think that the cooperative model is a really strong one for all kinds of reasons. And I, I don't know as much about it as I should, but everything I've read that does sort of seem like the heyday of agriculture where it, it provided some stability for markets. It provided, it insulated, um, you know, producers from like big shocks to the system and it was able to remain relatively dynamic compared to what we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I just think it's interesting that the other thing we're sort of finding in agriculture is that the way we've been doing it with the whole like get bigger, get out, and also with like monocultures, 
which is when you look at, you know, confinement, like raising livestock in confinement, it's a very different scenario than when you are doing what we're doing with cattle, which we have to, we have to deal with the ecosystem as a whole. And we have to be, um, and that's when I was talking about regenerative agriculture. I mean, there's ways that we can continue to, you know, come up with, with ways to do our job better with grassland management. But regardless, it, we don't have the blank slate of like a, a giant building with cement floors that we can, like we can control all the inputs and all the outputs. We just can't. Right, right. So we have to be more, in order to be resilient, we have to be dynamic. It's just, it's built into the way we operate. And I think when it comes to raising crops, like that's they're, what they're discovering um, is that having monocultured crops is really problematic. So even in big ag, you know, you have now, uh, where you you don't run the same crop in the same field year after year after year, and like there's all different kinds of ways that they're discovering and putting into practice diversification or reintroducing diversification because that actually is a better way to you know that's how it used to be done and it is actually a better way to do things. Well, it's got to be more sustainable in terms of just the earth itself. You know, I mean when you're mm-hmm. when you're when you're working with farms and, and places like that, I mean. You can you can kill a kill a ground by just overdoing it. You know you've got to find that balance. And when that's the that's one of the struggles I have when you when when I look at this is you know when your when your end goal is profit because of people you know that aren't really out there doing it. You know they're just invested in it. Um, you know that's that kind of stuff gets overlooked. One because they might not know. You know, because they just they just don't know. They're they're seeing a, a way to make make some money, or or two, they've got a product that they need to make. Like, um, well, I mean, you know, pick a product, Heinz ketchup or whatever the case may be, um, and so they need their their farmers to keep doing the same thing over and over and over in the exact same way mm-hmm. because we have to keep putting this stuff on the shelf, you know, and it's 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 a little scary, you know. There's a there's a there's a part of me that wants to get, you know, super apocalyptic and just load up a deep freeze with as much as I can, you know. Yeah. But then there's another part of me that's like, well, I I do live in rural South Dakota, so there's there's local ranches and local places that do sell directly, you know, and they, you know, there's places that. I don't know if it's going to hit us as crazy as it would in metropolis areas, you know, where they, that's just what they know. And it might, I might be completely wrong. You know, I mean, my, my dad went to the a local plate rancher down there and he found out that they're booked, all their stuff is booked through September just from, from people well, and, needing to prepare and get ready. So. Well, and that's, I mean, at this point there, I think we are going to run into a shortage of, of butchers. <laughs> that's that's going to be the, be the short term problem, sure. but. That'll be the new know, bottleneck when, is we don't have enough people that know what they're doing to get it cut right. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, basically at this point there, again, it's different with, with cattle with, you know, or most in, producers would have the option to like start selling to you if they want to, they can like, if you, drive into somebody's ranch. Actually, I don't know if you know the author, Linda Hazelstrom. She's great, but she's another person that writes about these things and writes about um, the ranching tradition. And she lives um, in Hermosa. She's, and she uh, wrote something on, on Facebook in response to um, my article that she was just like, really literally just go drive, like go to a ranch, drive up the driveway, go to their house and say, I would like to buy beef from you. <laughs> and like, they will probably be like, Okay. No problem. <laughs> well, that happened with a, with that a dairy farm. I yeah. mean, that, that's the beauty of like, and, and, you know, one of the things that's cool about it too is like, get to, get to know your neighbor. <laughs> For us here living in rural South Dakota, of course, that won't, that won't work if you're in New York City. But. Sure, sure. Well, it almost makes you wonder too, like what, I don't know, I mean, career wise, you know, I mean, I, I, like I said, I grew up in that world, but I, definitely left it, you know, a long time ago. And it makes me wonder like, man, did I make the wrong choice on not being, um, you know, not staying with, with ranching and farming and that type of lifestyle because, uh, you know, self-sustaining, you know, that's what they do, you know? And now I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I super dependent on a, on a, you know, uh, 
a system of, of food supply that I don't know if I can trust right now. <laughs> and it's like, oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's fundamental. Like it, it's fundamental to life. Food is fundamental to life. And yet the vast majority of us, and again, until, you know, relatively recently, I include myself in that number, really mm-hmm. didn't think about food that much, you know, other than like, just, oh, then you get it from the grocery store and then you eat it and that's that's that. Right. I mean, you know, I had some pots of tomatoes on my on my uh, urban fire escape. <laughs> that was about <laughs> as far as it went. Right, right. <laughs> Thinking about Was it the hanging tomato from. plant? Is that what you had? Did you have that? <laughs> well, no, I had a pretty, I had actually, it was the, it was the roof of the, of the, uh, it was a triplex oh, in okay. Northeast Minneapolis, and it was the roof of like the deck be- for the apartment below me. <laughs> so gotcha. I, I had some okay. nice, pretty nice pots that I could get going and get cool. like five tomatoes a year. <laughs> I saw a, uh, I saw a, a picture of a, a dairy farm, and I forget where it was now, but they were able to. They were told to, you know, dump out their milk. And because they couldn't, they couldn't get it sold because of everything else that's happening right now, but they were able to bottle it and they put out the word to all the local areas that, Hey, we've got, you know, X amount of gallons of milk. You know, if, if you guys are needing milk, come get some. And the picture that was taken had a line of cars for miles just stretched out waiting, you know, to get into this dairy farm to, to buy milk. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it it's one of those things where it's like, man, that is, one, uh, beautiful that they were able to do that versus dumping, um, how, how much uh, you, you posted an article about, uh, there's a, the dairy farmers of America, they're what, dumping like was it 3.7 million gallons of milk per day. There it is, which yeah. is just crazy. Absolutely I insane. Know. <laughs> and yet it's like, I'm sitting there going, when I go to the grocery store right now, like, should I get two gallons just in case? Or is one will one be enough, and I can maybe come back next week and get the next gallon? I used to, you know, and like, but three point seven million are being dumped. So, but it's cool that they were able to do that because it, one, you know, they were they must have been had the freedom to, which is not the case for a lot of people, as as from what it sounds like. But two, you know, they had a um, an awareness of of a need in their area, and they were able to take care mm-hmm. of it, which is, I mean, that's. That's humanity 101, you know? If someone needs something, let's see what we can do to help, you know? Yeah, yeah, <sighs> yeah. It's, well, and this is where, to me too, you know, if, if, you're, if your dairy is part of the supply chain where it's actually going into some other product that needs dairy in it, so it's not just getting put into a carton and set on the shelf. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where things get all kind of, or can get really messed up um, in this in this supply chain as it exists now, and that so the other thing I think about a lot too is just like how we can eat in a way that is just the the products that we're buying are more or as close as possible to the way they were when they came out of the ground, or you know that that they that they are similar to what the farmer produced as opposed to like you know really processed food, which is arguably not that great for us either. And certainly that is, I think, part of what creates the dynamic in a supply chain where it can only be one thing because it has to go through so many processes to get yeah. to you. Um, it has to get the and right... that's just not a way that most people are used to eating or shopping anymore. Yeah, not at all. Uh, one of the things that I saw also was that, you know, the, uh, when, it's, when, it's, when food is highly specialized like that, you can't, you can't redirect it to anything else. It's, it's stuck being, being this thing. And one of the things too, was even if, even if it could be, it's only, um, I forgot what the word is for it. Um, I'll have to think about it, but it's only able like the, the licensing or the stamps that it gets, you know, when it's, it's, you know, certified or the certifications that it can get aren't necessarily geared for end consumer. They're they're geared for other things, so they're not even able to to sell to an end consumer. Even though it could be totally fine, but the the uh, red tape or the the paperwork process through it all is not set up for them to do that. And it just mm-hmm. it blew me exactly. away that that's the reason we're 
dumping milk or smashing eggs or uh, there was one uh, hog plant I, I found out just this morning that they are they're reopening. So um, the Defense Production Act uh, was put into place. I don't know if you heard about that. Where it's basically I, I did hear about okay. that. Yeah. So they're forcing basically forcing the meat plants to reopen, and uh, there's a hog plant that said we're going to reopen but only to so we can euthanize the the hogs that we have to because we can't sell them because everything's bottlenecked it's like wow we're reopening a plant to just basically throw things away it just it yeah blows me away Isn't just that intense i can't believe it like how how did it get to that point and i'm sure someone knows and i'm sure you know the more i dive into this rabbit hole I'm going to find out myself but it just it's crazy that it got so big and so tightly controlled that a that a rancher or a person can't just do what they want with the stuff that they're working with you know with the with their cattle that they keep alive every day and the chickens and everything like that they can't their their hands are tied you know if they're told go kill the hogs they got to they got to go do it yeah and i mean it's Again, like you said before, with with something that's uh, a, a living creature, <laughs> you can't just like say, "Well, we'll just leave them in the pen and then get back to it next week, or we'll right. see how it." You know, right. like my book tour, we can say, "Well, we'll just wait and see how it goes." You can't you can't do that when it's like a thing that's actually need, continuing to need to be fed, continuing to need to have like a space to exist in. Right. When you know they've got the next like again with the supply chain it's like all the the baby the baby pigs are getting bigger and they're too big for the pen they're in they need to get moved up to the next size so there's just literally no place like physical place to put them in the you know in any given operation because like that's how tightly controlled every set like you know little and this goes back to efficiency like i was saying you know when you have when you've gotten it to a point where you can control all these inputs and outputs that means that there's no wiggle room. It's unbelievably efficient until you can't do what you're supposed to do because something else happens. Yeah, there's a cornerstone in it and you pull that one brick out of it and the whole thing crumbles. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, so that that analogy speaks volumes to me because that was when, so I grew up, um, I, I went to college to be a pastor and uh, one of the uh, analogies given to me regarding my faith was, you know, if if I, you know, point out one flaw in what you believe, does that mean the whole thing dies? You know, and it's like, if it does, then you don't have a very strong faith. And so yeah. that analogy in terms of with the, with the food supply chain or whatever the case, whatever you want to put it to, if, if one thing comes out and the whole thing falls, then you don't have a very stable thing to begin with. And you need to re- realign it and refix it. Um, and I don't know what that looks like, you know, long-term, I, I'm really worried that nothing's going to change once this pandemic is all behind us. I think we're, I think we're in a position now where we might be, it might be too late to reverse things, but I don't know. I, I really hope I'm wrong. And you might, you might know more than me. And if it's even possible, to reverse it well, or not. I, I, I don't. I, I, I fear like you that it will just return, you know, to business as usual. And I, I do think you know, what, one thing that I kind of keep hearing again and again too is that, and this I also said in, in, my, in my op-ed piece, is that, that we the consumers really get to decide and we will vote with our dollars whether we want something new to happen or something or mm-hmm. just to return to business as usual. And the reality is that this efficient system is cheaper. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's cheaper it, and we are distracted enough to not think about it. You know, yeah. when we come, when it comes to our dollars, you know, we're, we're, we live in, we, we live in a world where it's, if we can get it quick and we don't have to think about it, we're going to do that. <laughs> you know, the majority yeah, and, of people so, anyway. Yeah. Do you want to make, you could, sure you can look up, find a butcher shop in your area. And if you, if enough people support that butcher shop, like that's exactly how that they'll be able to grow their business. And then we'll have, instead of like just a handful of small butcher shops, we'll have a whole bunch of mid-sized butcher shops and we'll have a whole bunch of independent producers that are sending their meat to, you know, or to their animals to these mid-sized butcher shops. And, and that, 
could be that could become the new normal. Like that could really happen. And there are some hopeful things um, that even before the pandemic, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a meatpacking plant in Fort Pier that has been closed for a long time is going to be reopening. And they're exactly that. They're like bigger than, you know, your neighborhood butcher shop, but, but tiny compared to, um, you know, a Smithfield. Oh, I hadn't heard and, of that. That's awesome. And they will be working directly with independent producers as opposed to the meatpacking industry. And that, and that was a, I, I, at least my understanding is that's a direct result of what I was talking about before, which is that there's all this pressure getting put on these um, family ranches basically to get bought out by corporations. And mm-hmm. there are, are plenty of people who don't want to see that happening. And this is how, what, you know, one step that's being taken to try to prevent that from happening that occurred even before the pandemic. That's so, fantastic. I know, isn't it? So, so that does make me helpful. And because there is an awareness um, amongst consumers now that wasn't there before. I mean, it doesn't have to be every single person. Like there can still be people that buy their meat at Walmart and you know, that Smithfield produces their bacon for them. Mm-hmm. But as long as, at least my opinion is as long as a whole bunch of people decide not to do that. And so that we can have another business model existing beside that. I mean, that would still be a really big improvement over the current situation. And I think that's, realistic. I think that could happen. Absolutely. I mean, this is America. We do like our options. So we should, we should have that in our food supply also, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that gives me a little bit of hope. I'll be honest with you there. I appreciate you saying stuff like that. I hope more and more <laughs> <Yeah>. of that happens. <laughs> Oh, I know. It's otherwise it's just like, oh man, what is gonna? Especially because you know we we both have little kids, and so you just have this thing like, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, it's super worrying. We're doing the best we can, but yeah. Well, there's a certain level too when 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 giant corporations set their eye on something. They usually sometimes it takes a long time, but they usually end up getting it. So you know, I I'm worried that if if there's not a drastic I don't think revolution is the right word. It might be the right word, but a change, let's say change uh, in in the way people think about their food and and how they get it and where, like you, like you said, where they put their dollars. You know, I think you're only looking at, you know, not too much longer in the future. It might not be in our lifetime, but certainly our kids that, you know, the corporations get what they want, you know, and that's... Mm-hmm. That's a that's a scary world to live in, especially if you know pandemics become more of a thing. Because you know, I mean, the world's growing day by day by day. You know, so I don't know if this is the only one we're gonna see. It might it might be. Hopefully, I, hopefully it is, but I don't know. But if you if you've got a system that can't handle things like this, you need to you need to have something in place, you know, whether it's a fallback plan or whether it's, a, you know, another supply chain channel, like, like the local and regional places that are able to sustain us through it. There's gotta be something. And mm-hmm. like right now we're in a, we're in a very scary position. Uh, yeah, we really, I mean, it, it, it feels to me scary as well. But the other thing I remind myself, I don't know if you'll find this reassuring, <laughs> but, just please reassure I, I, me as much as you can. <laughs> I know, like, well, it's, it, it's, it's a pretty dark version of like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, most people probably wouldn't, this wouldn't sound optimistic, but I read, um, I, for a long time anyway, uh, after moving out here, I was really, really interested in reading, um, you know, narratives of homesteaders and what they survived and what they experienced. And, and just in general, I mean, oh my gosh, human beings have had to, like, what what used to be normal, like, relatively recently, sure. as in, you know, a hundred years ago or less, especially, like, where I'm living right now. I mean, this this place wasn't settled till the, till the 19-teens. And I, so what people were having to, to do just to survive and what they were up against, I mean, it's, it's like, holy smokes, how is that even possible? You know, you hear stories about, families coming in the fall and there wasn't time to build anything or they didn't have money or they didn't have supplies. So they just dug a hole in the ground. They tipped over, you know, the wagon that they'd ridden out. And then they just lived in the hole under the wagon for the winter. And, you know, as I'm sure, you know, winters are not something to mess around with here. And and yet people did it and they survived. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyways, the part of that that's reassuring is that even if we have 
to deal with some pretty serious deprivation. Humans are actually more resilient than we give ourselves credit for, I think. So that's true. We've, we've gotten used to having things be easy. And it's, I think it's, it's more than, more than plausible that we will in the, you know, near to midterm future have to deal with a lot more deprivation than what we, than what we've had to for the previous, you know, four generations or whatever. But like, Anytime before that, and still in many parts of the world, people are having to live in conditions that are hard and they do it and they still find joy and they still, you know, find meaning and, and, and arguably sometimes more so because struggling isn't necessarily bad. We've gotten to think that it is in modern America, but it, it isn't necessarily bad. And again, you know, what drew me to this lifestyle or rather what has kept me here is that it turns out that those type of elemental struggles, uh, they do give your life meaning. And, and I have found a meaning that I think really was missing when I was living my, my urban, um, you know, artist experience, which, mm-hmm. you know, it was fun and it had certainly interesting parts of it, but it was hard not to feel sort of superfluous in this kind of like deeper like what is the point of existence type of way. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. I mean, and there's gotta be a certain level of, you know, genuine joy in, in that those types of, of struggles and situations where when, when joy happens, you know, it's, it's deeply felt versus, you know, Oh, I got a, I got a new thing at the store. Like, mm, that's not, that's not joy. You know, that's just right. you know, scratching an itch, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I do certainly hope that as you know, there is a certain innate uh, part of ourselves as humanity that is able to, you know, bring out those elements of our, of our history and our past, you know, the, the, like you were talking about, you know, the, the rancher that literally has to do everything, you know, that's not too long ago. That was a lot of people, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, whether they were a rancher or not, you know, you, you knew how to do a lot of it. You knew how to survive, you know, and we've, we've lived in a world where, you know, a lot of stuff has been done for us and, hopefully, you know, that those qualities are ingrained in, in our DNA somewhere, you know, so if, and if, and when something does happen, we're able to, you know, survive it as a, as a, as a whole, I mean, humanity will, you know, I'm I'm just worried about certain people, I think, but (laughs) I mean, I've, I've seen some interesting, interesting social media comments. I'll leave it at that. But some people you wonder where they, what they think and that and how they're going to, how they're going to make it past college. But, um, it's interesting. I don't know. Do you, do you see any type of long-term like sustainable solution through this? Like, do you think there's a, or do you, have you talked or heard of reading anyone that is coming up with a plan to prevent this from happening again? Well, the, the best thing that I, I mean, again, what, what I keep reading that that makes me feel like this could be a way forward is kind of like to go back to that cooperative system where, um, you know, not to not to use that terrible buzzword socialism, but where there's a lot more <laughs> things that are owned by people mm-hmm. um, as a collective, and that that would be a really uh, for the ag industry that that would be a way forward, and this and that could be true even. Um, and I don't know the d- details of this Fort Pier plant, but I think it is owned by people who are ranchers, although I could be wrong about that. So, you know, if you had a, a cooperative that, that, you know, sort of made decisions about buying and selling, <clears throat> but also was linked to, you know, these mid-sized processing plants and that, that we're all able to work together. I mean, again, when that, that was the system for a while and it worked well, there was a lot less people though, as you've noted. So it is hard to guess when you, you know, to scale it up to what we have now in terms of the number of people we have and our, our urban areas are even bigger Mm -hmm. um, than they were. So, and and continue to get bigger. So yeah. Can you take that kind of a business model and scale it up? You know, I, I don't know. But, and that's why I think if you have the two different kinds existing side by side, and this kind is sort of a strange thing to say, but I've thought for a while too, that like the whole locavore movement and sort of trying to getting to know your farmer, shopping at farmer's markets is, is actually sort of a class thing. 
it, it really, you know, people who have the time and energy and transportation and, you know, there's a lot of things that you, that have to be in place for you to be able to take advantage of that system. And, you know, if you're working two jobs and you don't have reliable transportation or you live in a food desert, I mean, there's just going to be ways that, that you're not going to be able to, to get to know a rancher. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's kind of problematic, but, but maybe like, that's why you need to have both systems and maybe that would, that will be okay as a solution mm-hmm. to, you know, again, just trying to find a little bit more balance. So people who have the time, energy, and extra money to, to spend on, you know, making some different choices with their food, they need to do it because there are people that won't have that option. Sure. Sure. I mean, and to use, I don't know. to use a, to use an analogy that's very fitting. Let's not put all our eggs in one basket, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Literally and exactly. Yeah, it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. Um, I, I told you I'd only keep you an hour and we, we've kind of hit that, but when, when's your book come out? I know the, the tour might get delayed or something like that, but um, tell me real quickly just uh, about the book real quick and when you plan on it being released. Well, I think so the um, it's being published. So South Dakota magazine has a publishing arm. They, they only do a couple of books a year. Um, so I, that's who I've been working with. And okay. <clears throat> We just had a marketing meeting two weeks ago and, and our sort of <laughs> was like, but at the end of it was like, well, I guess we'll just kind of, rather than like having big events that we promote, we'll just kind of let it be a little trickle. So the book just got back from the printer and you can pre-order it now by going to their, well, my website, which is elizablue.net, um, but that will link you to their website. So you can also... Um, find it through South Dakota magazine. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so you're right now you can pre-order it and I think they're going to, it's just going to be, you know, they'll start mailing them out pretty soon. I think. Okay. That's super so, cool. So maybe even now, maybe you can even say it's available now. If not now, soon. I'm going to go look <laughs> as soon as soon. we get so done. I'm buy <laughs> your copy and, and it'll, yeah, it'll be in the mail soon. That's cool. <laughs> What's the name of it? It's called Accidental Rancher. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, and the subtitle is uh, Lambs in the Laundry Room and Other Stories, which is funny because I actually have a house lamb right now. So I was like, oh, there you go. See, oh, it's perfect. That, that's great. She, she, was, uh, she was a trip. She was the only survivor in a, in a, in a triplets and her, the, the you that she came out of was really sick. So anyway, she's kind of on her own and it's too sad to be in the barn by yourself as an only lamb. So she's going to get, I mean, think, you've, basically you've, think she's a person. <laughs> plus you've got a little bit of a soft spot for lambs. So. Oh, exactly. Yeah. There's no, it's definitely, the struggle is real. My husband will tell you. <laughs> will, will, will that be part of your, uh, your, your stage decor next time you do a show, just have a, a live lamb up there just hanging out. Oh my gosh. Well, this, this, that, yeah. That if you only could, because, right? <laughs> yeah, well, usually, you know, I don't, it's funny cause I, I just like lambs. I think they're adorable and they're very sweet and, but baby anything, I mean, baby anything is hard to say no That's true. to. Um, but it's this true. particular lamb, I don't know what it is about her, but she's just sort of extra, extra adorable and extra like, I don't know, wants to be part of the family. So it, yeah, I keep thinking, what is going to happen? We are going to, ha- we have to find her a friend so she can go start <laughs> learning how to be a lamb because she really thinks she's a person right now. And Oh, that's perfect. So, I don't know. Maybe that's she can perfect. be, join the band, I guess. <laughs> we have to yeah, find just- an instrument she can play. <laughs> just start a start. Give the lamb an Instagram account, and people can follow that lamb out, and that'll be another way to you know bring in some extra revenue for you. You know, people can. You know, it's not a bad idea actually. Now that you're saying market that, with the lamb, really <laughs> yeah, marketing with the lamb. That's we great. Can, yeah. Yep. Hey, it's a good idea. A lot of people do it it's with their pets. Might as well do it yeah. with the lamb. You know. Why not do it with my lamb? Yep. Oh, All right. Good. Well, if I get my if I get my. Uh, Myself in gear. You can look for for Nell the Lamb and see. Oh, perfect! If you do, <laughs> let me know. I'll, I will tell everyone about it and make sure everybody follows it. It'd be great. Right. <laughs> well, Eliza, thanks deal. so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, I know you said you're not an expert, but you're you're kind of on the front lines of 
everything that's going on with the ranch and that. So you know more than I do. So I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time and congrats on the, on the article in the New York times. That's super, super cool. And uh, I can't wait to read your book. Uh, well, thank you so much. It was great to chat with you too. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Yep. Bye. <laughs> bye. And that's it for this episode, folks. You can check out more about Eliza at www.elizablue.net. I'll have the links to the articles we mentioned in the show notes as well. And I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And it got you thinking a little bit deeper about this topic. Thanks for stopping in. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Until next time.